Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Today, I am joined by the vibrant and energetic Hilda Labrada Gore, aka Holistic Hilda. Hilda is the host and producer of the popular Wise Traditions podcast, which has nearly 9 million downloads to date. And Tradiciones Sabias, Hilda, forgive me for my Spanish, the Ancestral Wisdom Spanish podcast on behalf of the Weston A. Price Foundation. A certified health coach and ancestral health advocate, she has traveled the world exploring traditional practices for optimal well-being. Hilda shares the best of experts, experiences, and expert adventures on the podcast, her Holistic Hilda YouTube channel, and on the ancestral health tours and conferences. Hilda is also a podcast coach and author of the book, Podcasting Made Simple. She enjoys helping people in the health and wellness space launch and improve their shows and is launching a group coaching space for podcasters this fall. Hilda has energy to spare thanks for her love for sunshine and her liverwurst, which you will find out all about during this conversation. And additionally, I will be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. This episode, the organization is the Wesson A. Price Foundation, a not-for-profit organization for which Hilda is a very active member. So please join me in donating to the Weston A. Price Foundation. The link is in the show notes. And in this conversation, Holistic Hilda and I explore all of the myths about food and all the things that we might not know about food. We spend a lot of time talking about healthy fats, such as grass-fed butter, uh, the different cooking oils that we use that we might think are unhealthy because they have dietary fat. Hilda really helps us debunk and dispel this myth. We also spend a lot of time talking about cultivating inner knowing and trusting our intuition. In a world where we are, we're sold so many things and we're told to be a certain way and to do certain things, Hilda has become a really good listener to herself and a deep listener of others. And we spend a lot of time in this conversation exploring how she has cultivated that and practices that in her life. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy what Hilda has for us today. Hilda, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. I'm so glad to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you on and you're a pro at this and I'm so excited in many different respects to have you on because I know that you've been on your own kind of discovery journey and you have so much wisdom around what we eat and how to nourish ourselves and those are all really important things for me. And, and I think they should be important for everyone, frankly, but I wanted to start with you the same way I start with basically every interview. 
I want to know what it was like at your dinner table when you were growing up. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Do you like to help the guests like deal with their childhood trauma? Is that the thing, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> it's one way of saying, hey, Hilda, what's what were you like as a child or what's your story? And it's a it's a different door to get there. <laughs> well, the truth is. Hmm, it wasn't a happy scene. It really wasn't like my parents did the best they could. God bless them. And I really don't judge them at all, but there was tension in our household. And I was definitely raised in an environment of children should be seen and not heard. So I don't remember like having lively conversation around the table or any of those things. As a matter of fact, the thing that stands out most to me is my father one time asking me, how do you say hot dog in Spanish? And I couldn't remember I really couldn't remember. And I got sent to my room because I couldn't remember how to say hot dog in Spanish. Now, of course, I do know it's perro caliente. But when I was little, you know, it's also just a funny thing to be punished for. It's not like I was misbehaving. I just couldn't remember. But I'm grateful for the language, like I told you. And I'm also grateful for the gifts my parents did give me of kind of spontaneity and curiosity and a little bit of a rebellious streak, you know, so all the good gifts I have from them are, are something I'm grateful for. And even the hard stuff too, probably because it taught me maybe what not necessarily to do with my own kids. <laughs> mm, yeah. As a random curiosity, I know that you speak French also. Is that something that you picked up on the side or was that cultivated in your household as well? Yeah, you know, my father really is a polyglot. He worked for the Organization of American States for a long time as a translator and interpreter. And I followed in his footsteps after I graduated from college. I was like, well, I want to be a translator too. But it was to back up and answer your question. In high school, I picked up French realizing, oh, it's a romance language. It's very similar to Spanish. So it was super easy for me. I even skipped a, a level. And I remember being in French class and the teacher was asking me, hey, you did a good job on this. Why did you use the subjunctive? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I didn't know the grammar exactly, but it just came to me instinctively. And so, yes, when I worked for Interpol, I used to translate documents in Spanish and French and put them into English. And now I mostly focus on Spanish and English, but I will be going to France any day now. So I'm really excited about that. Awesome. Awesome. And just to give a little bit more color on your backstory, I would love to hear, I know that you're, I mean, you're name is holistic Hilda in a, a lot of circles. That's, that's kind of the way that you branded yourself. So where, where did that, what was that inspired by? Well, in a way, I wonder if it should be holy Hilda. And I don't mean that in a like, ah, angels around me <laughs> sense, although I'll accept that. But I was born with a hole in my heart, Mike. I was born with a birth defect, a hole between the lower two ventricles. And the doctors were very concerned. They monitored me for years before they did open heart surgery when I was nine years old. And after they did that surgery, they basically gave me a clean slate. They were like, you can do whatever you want. And I was like, ah, what do I want to do? Well, I wanted to be strong and honor my body and really actually, yes, honor God too. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to drink. I'm going to do everything I can to stay strong. I'm going to work out. I'm going to eat right. And then that passion led into my becoming a fitness professional and led into my work with the Weston A. Price Foundation today. And I love that my name is Holistic Hilda. A fellow podcaster gave it to me one time. He's just like, you're Holistic Hilda. And I was like, oh, whatever. 
And then I realized, oh my gosh, that's perfect for me because I understand that health is multifaceted. It's not just what we eat or the workouts that we do. It has to do with our connection with nature, our connection to one another, spiritual growth, mental mindset, all the things. So I'm just like, this is it. And I'm so thankful. Mm -hmm. When did, like, I've done a little bit of homework on you and and some research. And I, I know that you started as a fitness professional. Food was not always you didn't really know what you should be eating. And and you kind of were always, like you said about your parents, you were doing the best you could with what you had, but you didn't really land on something that was working for you until relatively, maybe not recently, but like later on in your life. So where, how did you make those realizations? That's a great question. My best friend, Lisa had chronic fatigue. And the doctors couldn't help her. Even today, doctors are like, we don't know what causes this. We don't know if there's any cure. So she started playing around with her own diet. She went like vegetarian. She went macrobiotic. She was trying all the things. And she met Sally Fallon Morell at a health fair. And she was like, Hilda, this woman is older, but she was glowing with health. And I was like, hmm. And then she's like, and my, she gave me this book called Nourishing Traditions. Lisa was telling me this is what Sally did. And she's like, and Sally didn't even give me a hard time because at this point, Lisa was orange. She was eating so many carrots (laughs) and she's like, Sally was polite enough. She didn't comment on the color of my skin. She just handed me this book, said you might want to read it. Well, when I started looking at it, first of all, I was intimidated because it's a big book. But then secondly, I was like, wait, this makes so much sense. Kind of a, where have you been all my life moment? I was like, this book says that what naturally grows around us is probably good for us. You know, that what, you know, kind of God makes is good and what man makes can be kind of messed up sometimes or adulterated. And it made so much sense. It really resonated with me. And that's when I started thinking, okay, what we eat does matter. It's not just working out. So I was like, okay, it's exercise and diet. And then, like I said, a moment ago, it's actually much more than that, but that's kind of what got me on my way with the dietary thing and understanding a little bit of the Weston A. Price Foundation philosophy. Mm-hmm. And what would you say is that philosophy? And just to give a, a little bit more color, I want to spend a lot of time, like a lot of my podcast is focused on people's spiritual journey and how you make meaning in your life. But I also, I know that you have so much to share around just pragmatic wisdom around nutrition. So I, I at least want to cover that base before we go there. And so what are some of the pragmatic takeaways that you've had both in your own journey, but I know that you're very affiliated with the Weston A. Price Foundation. And so what are some of the pillars of that that you share with folks? I often share the beginning of the journey as I did a moment ago with my story with Lisa and how she influenced me. But I will say also a pivotal moment for me was when I was in Kenya. So basically, I found this Weston A. Price Foundation group, which for now on, I'll just call it the Wise Traditions Group because that's a mouthful to say the other way. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I found this Wise Traditions Group and they said, we need two volunteers to go to Kenya because a Maasai warrior contacted us and he said, please send someone over. We're all getting sick. I mean, get this, the Maasai, you know, they're the ones known for being like hale and hearty and super tall and strong, you know, and, and they were saying, send someone over. We're all getting sick. This warrior contacted the foundation. He said, I've got diabetes. My wife has asthma. And he had come across some of their brochures explaining the philosophy, which I'll get to in a minute. But basically, I was the first one to raise my hand. I was, you know, a chapter leader. And long story short, I got to go to Kenya. I got to go to this really remote village called Oiti on the border of Tanzania and Kenya. 
And so there I was, Mike, like sitting among these women wearing their colorful traditional clothing, the beaded earrings, the beaded necklaces, like it was like something from a movie and it was glorious. And I had the privilege of saying, don't eat the American way, whatever you do. I was like, eat your way, eat the way that has nourished your people for millennia. And so this segues into what I told them. I was telling them about Dr. Price, who was this dentist researcher guy from the 1930s. He traveled the world and he was looking for healthy indigenous people groups. Mm-hmm. What he found wherever he went was the people eating their whole real food, right? Where they were, like whatever's available to them there in the South Sea Pacific Islands. It was a lot of seafood, obviously, maybe some wild boar, you know, and some little grubs and things, you know, and then in Switzerland, it was dairy and milk and cheeses and butter, you know, and in Alaska, it was whale blubber and seal, seal oil. So it was different everywhere he went, but people were eating their traditional foods there, foods without labels, if you will. And he made a list and recorded lots of things in his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. But basically when I was in Kenya, not only did my friend, this warrior I'm mentioning, witness what had happened among his own people as they were departing from their traditional food ways. But I had the privilege of interviewing this man who was like a hundred years old. He's still alive today. Sankao Ole Sirote. And this man, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to ask him questions. So, you know, not a podcaster yet, but I grabbed my phone. I pushed voice memo record, you know, and just started recording him. And I through a translator. I said, what did you eat back in the day? How did you live? Were you healthy? And he was like, we ate whatever we could catch. You know, mm-hmm. he was like, we would just hunted. Maybe we'd have some wild fruit and honey. And other than that, it was whatever we hunted. And you know, as well as I do, probably that the Maasai diet is like basically now meat and milk and blood. And that's what he thrived on. And even Dixon, my warrior friend who had called the foundation said, you know, back in my day, I would go with the cattle to the mountains so they could graze freely wherever I'd be with them for a week with only raw milk. And I was fine. He goes, now my son, after a few days, needs food. And so he had seen how things had changed and shifted. And in part because they left their traditional food ways and were starting to include more Western foods like sodas and refined refined flour and sugar and all these things. As a matter of fact, one woman I met, Nayamik, I think was her name. We were sitting in Dixon's home and she, while she was chatting with me on her, in her traditional clothing and stuff, she had a white bread jam sandwich in one hand and a chai tea in the other. And I was like, oh no, but here's the good news. They were open to learning about these wise traditions principles. One of which the first one is no refined or denatured foods. And so they listened to me. They decided as a community, they wanted to go back to nourishing traditional foods And when I went back the following year in 2016, they had started to return to those foods. And so it was just so beautiful and it's not complicated. That's why I hold on basically to principle like one and three out of 11. One is no refined or denatured foods and three is nutrient density. Looking for the most biggest bang for our buck. So instead of eating Cheetos, eat cheese, You (laughs) you know, it's just eat real food that, that not only tastes like that food, but, you know, gives you the nourishment that comes with it, the fat soluble vitamins, A, D and K and so forth. So I just have found this to be super revolutionary. And what I like about the wise traditions diet, and I'll let you ask me a question in a second, but what I like about it most is it's like a framework. It's not like the paleo diet, like here are your do's and don'ts, you know, like it's not restrictive. It's actually very 
or I should say it's not restrictive or prescriptive. It's more like, here's some guidelines, see what fits and resonates with you. So you need more fat in your diet, but they don't tell you what percentage you kind of need to figure that out for yourself. What is my body thriving on here? Um, they re recommend fermented foods. Again, they don't tell you how much you just need to think, wow, do I have any ferments on this plate? Maybe I should have something, you know, a couple times a day with my meal that will help me with digestive enzymes and so forth and probiotics. So it's just a framework that I find amazing and life-giving and great for health and vitality. Mm. So many questions, Hilda. <laughs> I would love to have just a little more color around what ancestral living is and what wise traditions is. And I, you know, I, I get the sense that I'm trying to stand in for my listeners here that a lot of this information is really exciting, but they, they might not be as familiar. Like certainly it, you wouldn't know this about me, but I went to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition to get my health coaching certification. And so I familiarized myself with a lot of diets and it, it really opened my world. And, and before that, it, you were kind of describing a similar realization in your life when you read, I forgot the book that you named, but you said you opened the book and it was, it both was like, oh my God, this is, I, I can't, this is so true to me. And this is so foreign to me at the same time. And if I stand in for my listeners, that might be the case right now. So I would love to hear more about like, I guess, how did you even discover what ancestral living is? And why do you think it makes so much sense to pay attention to our ancestors for clues about how we should nourish ourselves? This is the thing, Mike. I feel like we're like more connected in our current day than ever before, but a lot of that connection is virtual or artificial. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful that we're able to do this podcast. I'm grateful that we can watch YouTube videos to learn how to have backyard chickens or whatever, but <laughs> We need more chickens in real life. We need more people in real life. And I guess where I'm going with this is ancestral living is about reconnecting with the values that our ancestors had and, and disconnecting from what the world tells us we need to do. So I love the Instagram as much as anyone else. I can't believe I just called it the Instagram as if it was the <laughs> Facebook, but anyway, I'm not even quite that old, but I don't think, but what I'm trying to say is like, I love to see, you know, what Paul Saladino and other people that I follow have to say about health and wellness. But at the end of the day, they're not in my lives. They're not in my body. I need to reconnect with myself and with my community and do things that bring me joy. And honestly, being on the gram or being connected virtually tends to be a drainer for most of us. So what I'm suggesting to put it in the simplest terms is disconnecting from the virtual world and all the do's and don'ts and rules that we see out there and reconnecting with kind of a deep wisdom that comes with nature, that comes with who we are, that our ancestors followed. They didn't have social media, they had social, like they were with people, they learned things that were passed down from generation to generation, right where they are. And so I think we're all searching for something. This is why I love the name of your podcast, searching for meaning, because I think we're all searching for something greater than ourselves. But I actually think it starts with ourselves. So I got introduced to some of these concepts, again, through the Nourishing Traditions cookbook and through Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, which Dr. Price wrote but I'm a figure it out for yourself kind of girl too. And so I was like, you know what? I'm not just going to take the word of these people for what works for me. I'm going to start to make some changes 
and travel the world to see for myself if there is wisdom in these practices. So one of the first steps I took in terms of diet was I started to incorporate more fat. Again, this is something Dr. Price noted wherever he went in the world, people had a great amount of fat in their diets, much more than the people in the United States in his day in the 1930s. So he's like, okay, what kind of fat were they eating? Well, the saturated fat, the animal fats like lard and tallow and butter and you know, even coconut oil and palm oil, though, those are from plants like those, those saturated fats are super nourishing and they have vitamins A and D and so forth. And they, they are important for cognitive function, for everything, for cellular function. But Dr. Price didn't even know all this. I think he was just like, Hey, this has these particular activators. He called one of them activator X. And so he could see that the people were thriving on it. And the people that left those nourishing fats and were having more vegetable oils or seed oils were starting to have the chronic diseases of modern man, like what he saw in the West, like crowded teeth and poor vision and infections in the mouth and ill, you know, poor posture, all the things. So I, one year was like, I'm going to do like a page from the Chinese calendar and go with the year of the dragon, except instead of the year of dragon, I was like the year of butter. I just switched my butter. That's all I did. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, this stuff tastes so good. Where have you been all my life? Like, I really was like, country crock is a real crock. Like, this stuff is no good. Let me go for the real deal. And so little by little, I started kind of aligning my diet with something that was more nourishing and it felt better. Like I used to teach exercise classes as we've been mentioning. And in the middle of a workout, I would feel my blood sugar dip. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'd grab a power bar or what have you. I was like, I guess I'm just one of those people who needs to eat off and no. I was missing fat in my diet and probably protein too. So I switched my breakfast to instead of cereal with some berries and milk, I started having like full fat yogurt or whatever, quesadilla or eggs and bacon. And so then I would sail till two o'clock in the afternoon. And I was like, what is happening? I was so happy. So anyway, so butter was the first change I started to make in terms of diet. But then in, in terms of health practices, I learned stuff like that wasn't even in Sally's book or necessarily in Dr. Price's book, like the importance of getting sunshine. Like you might be like, Mm -hmm. oh, whatever. I don't want skin cancer. Let's make sure to put on the sunblock before we go out. But our ancestors didn't do that. And they didn't have the incidence of cancer and melanoma that we do today. So I started diving in deeper, both experientially and reading some books. I recommend Chasing the Sun by Linda Geddes and I think it's called Health and Light by John Ott. Anyway, I started looking into it, but also just realizing the sun is a nutrient. Like it helps us synthesize vitamin D, but it also gets our circadian rhythm in sync. It helps oversee hormonal function, like all these things. And I was a fitness professional, but I would go from home to dropping the kids off at school, to work, to the gym, to the grocery store or home. And if I spent 15 minutes outside, I was doing good. But now I realized like, oh my gosh, ancestor wisdom means exposing my body to the sun, letting the sun nourish me and give me that infrared light that's so healing on the inside that people pay big bucks to get in the sauna for. I can get it right now from the sun. So I, I've started to shift slowly and I hope listeners are realizing like, this is not something that happens from one day to the next necessarily. You can take incremental steps and the sun and butter are two great places to start. Mm. That is, that is, I don't think you understand, you probably do, but like, that sounds so radical to a lot of people, right? (laughs) Just like the, oh, the prescription that Holistic Hilda has given me here, it's sun and butter, but 
could you could you say you you named it a little bit like animal fats and butter have vitamin A and D, but could you could you speak to why fat is so important and, and what types of fats we should look for versus maybe ones to avoid? Well, I think it was back in the 70s and 80s where they kept saying, go low fat, go low fat. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm pretty sure that uh, thinking is turning around, but that said, you will still see on the supermarket shelves a lot of low fat products. And I think it's because these companies have invested a lot of money in that stuff. And so they're like, wait, we don't want all this sitting in our warehouse. We got to put it out there. So they keep pushing it. But it genuinely is a myth that fat makes you fat. It's quite the opposite. There was a, a study done in Massachusetts some years ago, and it showed that kids that drank low fat milk tended to gain weight quicker than those who drank whole fat milk. That's just one study. But you can even experience for yourself the satiety that happens when you do not fear fat, when you start to include fat in your diet, like I said, having a quesadilla in the morning, I would get like an organic tortilla, put some full fat cheese on it and slather it with butter. Like there's nothing better. So it's good for the taste buds. It's good for the satiety, but yes, we need the fat soluble vitamins, vitamins, A, D, E, and K in particular to absorb nutrients What I'm getting at is we talk a lot about bioavailability in our circles. You can eat a lot of foods, but if you don't have fat as kind of the mortar to hold the bricks together, your house, your foundation is going to fall apart. So for example, people think, oh, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to eat a salad. But if you don't put olive oil in there, you literally need dressing to help you absorb all the nutrients in those greens. So Dr. Price studied this at length, and he did say that there was some vitamin in there that he didn't know what it was, and now we believe it was vitamin K that really does help, as I mentioned earlier, with the cognitive function, with the cellular function. It's like I said, these vitamins, these fat-soluble vitamins are ones that help hold the foundation of your body together. And Our brains, as you know, for example, are primarily fats, right? They're primarily made of fat cells. So you want to nourish that. Don't starve your brain, for goodness sake. So uh, there's, yeah, there's so much I could say, but I do recommend that people check out those two books I mentioned, Sally Fallon's Nourishing Traditions and Dr. Price's Physical Nutrition and Physical Degeneration for some more insights on the fat-soluble vitamins. But again, if you just start to include butter, cook in lard, uh, tallow, coconut oil, palm oil, you'll find a new level of satiety and check for yourself if these things work. I love to challenge people on that because there can be a million studies on it, but if it doesn't resonate with you or with your experience, then it's not for you. So test it out for yourself and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And with animal foods, I mean, I lo- you mentioned Paul Saladino and I know that he's a, a strict carnivore and I, I don't believe that you are, but you incorporate lots of animal foods and animal fats. And I would love to hear why that's important and maybe the difference between a lot of people in my circle get hung up on like, why am I getting grass fed versus conventionally raised and and what is really the difference? It it just looks more expensive. So why would I get that? So if you could talk a a little bit about animal, animal food in general, and then also, and you could talk about organ meats too. I, I know that that's an area you're passionate about and why grass fed versus conventionally raised. I think what we have to remember is that there's more than an economic price to the food that we buy. Mm -hmm. So there's a saying in Spanish, lo barato sale caro, which means 
if it's cheap, it's going to cost you in the long run. <laughs> um, and I think that's really true. So you can't just say, well, this meat is on sale at Costco for two ninety five a pound and this like organic grass fed grass finished beef is six ninety five a pound. Why should I get that? One is going to spare you hospital bills down the line because this is the thing, Mike, everything is energy. And the way those they treat those animals is inhumane and stressful for those animals. Do you know that in concentrated animal feeding operations with chickens, for example, the chickens feel so stressed, they start like pulling out their feathers. So instead of changing their situation, they snip their beaks off. <laughs> like this is a real thing. And I don't mean to laugh about it. It's just laughable because they're not addressing the root of the problem. Mm -hmm. They're just thinking, okay, let's stop these chickens from picking their feathers out. Well, no, what if you put them in a better situation? So the chicken that is roaming around on pasture and eating as chickens do, because they're omnivores, little bugs and worms and different things, they are going to be so much healthier so that when you eat them, you're getting their happier energy as well, their happier life, but you're also not getting the antibiotics and the hormones and the other things that they've injected into these animals and concentrated animal feeding operations. Those animals are not healthy. So to prevent them from getting sicker, they inject them with all sorts of things. They're also trying to fatten them up for slaughter. So when you ingest an animal that's been a part of a concentrated animal feeding operation, you are getting those antibiotics, you're getting those hormones. I see young children sometimes here in the city who are getting to puberty faster than before. And I don't think it's just like, oh, cause we're so advanced. I think it's cause they're eating animal products with hormones in them. Mm -hmm. So the solution to my mind is not avoiding animal products because indeed these have been a part of our diet for millennia, but rather to eat the animals that have been raised properly as they would have been in ancestral times so that you can get the benefit of the energy and Really, in a way, they're like, Sally calls them transformers. Cows are like transformers. They're taking the light that has gone into the grass. They're eating the grass because we can't, right? And then we eat them and we get the benefit of that. So there's so much more to it, but I guess a fun way of thinking of it is, as I just said, the fact that we are light eaters. And so we want to eat animals. We want to eat plants. We want to eat things that have been in the sun because we, after all, are also animals on this planet that need the sunlight, as I mentioned earlier. So it's all part of that natural cycle. These animals that are in these CAFOs are often far from the light. They don't have access. Or maybe I think on a label, they can call them like cage-free if they have a little door that they can go out of now and then. It doesn't really count. So what we want are animals that have been in the sunshine that have been roaming free so that we can get the benefit of yes, their meat, but their energy and none of the hormonal or antibiotic side effects kind of. And I think this is maybe the last thing that I want to cover around food with you. But like I said, while you're here, I want to take advantage of your expertise. Could you explain the pitfalls and dangers of glyphosate and maybe one or two other misconceptions that people might have around nutrition. Like I, I know that you can speak very eloquently to anti-nutrients and which are pleasant and present in plants and plant foods. And yeah, I think a, a lot of people have the conception that eating vegetables is, is unquestionably always a good thing raw or cooked doesn't matter. And I, I know you have lots to say about this topic. So 
I do. But I forgot to say something about organ meat. So let me slide that in first. (laughs) So the thing about our ancestors too, is they didn't waste any bit of the animal. They ate nose to tail. And I witnessed this in Kenya. They slaughtered a goat and slaughtered is too dramatic of a word. They literally just covered his little nose and mouth and he suffocated. I mean, it was like that. He was gone. We thanked him. We ate his meat in gratitude, but immediately when they cut him open, literally some of my warrior friends were eating the organs raw. I was like, oh my gosh, they were drinking the blood. I mean, it was wild. But the point is if a tiger, you know, lunges at or lunges at rather a zebra and the savannah, you know, he will go for the organ meats first because he knows they're most nutrient dense. So in our culture, we're big on the muscle meats, you know, the, the, ground beef for burgers and the ribeye steak and all that is great. I love it too. But pound for pound, you're going to get greater trace minerals and even proteins and fats probably from the organ meat. So that might sound really foreign and I get that. So the way I started was having a liver pate, which you can make from chicken livers, or you can get from a Trader Joe's or Whole Foods or even your farmer's market because the liver is mixed with mushrooms and some other spices. So it's more palatable just to introduce yourself because we have to get reintroduced to these flavors, right? Um, I'm also big on liverwurst because they include sometimes some dairy and the preparation of that and taste good with a little mustard. I literally just had some for lunch, but mm. I'm looking for more organ meats in my diet because it does have a high level of B vitamins, which are great for your mood, help you avoid depression, but also you've got lots of iron and other trace minerals that are so good. And some people say that the reason we're so down and depressed and our hair is turning gray at younger and younger ages is because we're mineral deficient. We're copper deficient. We're looking for some things that we're not getting in the muscle meats and the white bread and all the things we're usually eating. So I do want to challenge folks to to look for those organ meats and to not be afraid of animal products. As a matter of fact, in Dr. Price's findings on nutrient density, he found that the people that ate the most animal products, I'm talking like eggs and cheese and milk and fish and all these things were the healthiest. And he thought he would find, this is a segue to your question, Mike, he thought he would find a plant-based community as he traveled the world. Like I said, he went to Alaska, Switzerland, Scotland, Kenya. He went all over the place. He didn't find one exclusively plant-based community. And you might say, well, that was Dr. Price in the 1930s. He didn't go everywhere. No, he didn't. But it's so clear that our people were hunters before they were hunter-gatherers. And so it's very clear that people were thrilled and thriving on animal meats, the fats, and the whole animal. The thing about plants is, yes, I've interviewed on my own Wise Traditions podcast, Dr. Bill Schindler. Of course, I've talked to Paul Saladino and others who say plants have their only defense. They don't have claws. They don't have sharp teeth. Their only defense is anti-nutrients. They're trying to avoid you digesting them. They're like trying to stay intact, right? So what they do is they have like um, oxalates. Spinach has oxalates, for example, and Beans have phytates, I think, and or lectins rather. There's all these things that each plant, seed, nut, or legume has that's trying to fight digestion. So when you eat those, especially if you eat them raw, your body's going to react. You might feel like you're bloated or um, you'll feel some maybe intestinal discomfort. And that's not by accident. 
it's because that's what these plants contain. So I'm not against plants, but I think we do need to process them. And one way to do that is to eat more ferments. So that's one way our ancestors would preserve food, but also make the nutrients more bioavailable and also neutralize the anti-nutrients. They would take cabbage and make sauerkraut or kimchi, or they would take, you can take almost anything and ferment it. And it does exactly what I said. It, it makes the ingredients more bioavailable, the nutrients, and it neutralizes the anti-nutrients. So I'm, I will have plant foods, but I'm just, I was so relieved when I found out they're kind of second-class citizens, as Paul Saladino would say, and even Sally would agree, they are not the most nutrient-dense thing on your plate. Does that mean you shouldn't include them? No, but it does mean that when you do, make sure they're processed in such a way that you're neutralizing the anti-nutrients or they're going to do you more harm than good. Mm. And then the very last thing, I would love to hear you just talk about glyphosate and oh, yes. why, yeah, what is, what is that and what, you know, what, what foods is it present in and why should we avoid it? Wow. Well, in the industrial agriculture model, they're always trying to find shortcuts, right? So that they can get more crops to more people and ostensibly to feed the world. But the problem with that large scale is it requires a lot of inputs. And so they started using like fertilizer that was actually like leftover stuff from, I think from weapons in World War II. Like that sounds crazy, but Google it if you're not sure, but I promise you the modern day fertilizer that we use is just an idea of what they could do with stuff that was left over um, from the war. But be that as it may, um, you were asking about glyphosate. So glyphosate is a weed killer. It is a, it's a, an ingredient in Roundup that is used not only on farms, but actually more often even on American lawns to get rid of weeds. And you might think, well, what's the problem with that? Well, the thing is, it not only kills the weeds, it kills bugs. And if it does that to them, we just have to think, what might it be doing to us? Because it has ingredients that are actually known now to be carcinogenic. I think there was a landscaping guy recently that put a suit against Monsanto and they did find that glyphosate is carcinogenic. He was spraying this stuff everywhere and he got sick himself. So some of us might not see the results right away, but we will feel the effects eventually. So what we wanna do is mostly avoid conventional foods. And what I mean by that is, you know, whether you're getting a green pepper or a kale or even bread, if it isn't organic, then that means it's probably been sprayed with glyphosate, not even probably, most likely in all likelihood. And even some say organic foods, we had to be careful of because sometimes there is the kind of, what do they call it? Like the trace amounts that kind of spray come blow over from your neighbor's conventional system. So, and sometimes glyphosate is used as a desiccant. It helps the wheat dry up after they harvest it so they can grind it up more quickly into flour. So it's kind of pervasive, but I don't want to emphasize it too much. Cause as you know, Mike, if you follow me, I like to be positive, but I would say go organic as much as you can, even though the price tag is a little higher in the short term that will be better for you in the long run. Mm -hmm. So before we segue here, I just want to share some appreciation with regard to that last bit there is that you have a way of being really educational and sharing all the information that you have at your disposal. And you also have this invitational way of just start where you can, right? Like 
it doesn't, uh, there's a way in which consumption of all this information can feel overwhelming and that we feel like, oh, the, the whole world is stacked against us and what am I supposed to do? And I need to uproot my entire life because everything is wrong. And you have a way of bringing in all this information and saying, okay, but also just like one change at a time, you'll, you'll still probably get a really great benefit from that. And so I, I appreciate that about the work that you do, because a lot, when I first got into nutrition, it felt like there were a lot of camps around, it was either just be in a calorie deficit and you'll be fine. Or it's <laughs> like, you have to, if you don't adhere to a strictly ketogenic diet, you're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> So. I know it's so overwhelming. And the thing is, like I told you earlier, I'm a translator or was a translator. So I love taking complicated scientific information or overwhelming information and bringing it into a language that people can understand. Bite-sized wisdom is what I call it sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm grateful that it's resonating with you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, something that I think is really important to you in many ways, not, not just in terms of when we hear the word listening, we, we typically probably think of something we do with our ears when another person is talking. And I've heard you speak about deep listening. And what I'm curious to dive into with you around deep listening is, one, when did that become something important to you? And, and that I think it was framed more around conversation at that point. And then from there, I would love to hear what does that mean? It seems very deeply connected to intuition to me and deeply listening to ourselves and being in touch with our bodies. So what is the importance of deep listening to you? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, I've always had a practice, I would say, since my early 20s of a quiet time in the morning of reflection, of gratitude, of prayer, of Bible reading. I uh, came to faith. Christian faith in my 20s and just embraced it and thought, okay, this is part of my discipline, part of my life. And as a girl who's super outgoing, as you can probably tell, I was just challenged to be still. And there's even a Bible verse that says, be still and know that I am God. And I feel like, so that's always been important to me, but I'm not the queen of quiet. <laughs> um, but this was still brought home to me recently on the trip you're referring to. I went to Australia in 2019 and an Aboriginal woman told me we have a concept here called Dadiri and it's deep listening. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I felt like my mind was blown because I guess as a Christian, I thought, you know, when we're quiet, we can connect with God. But these Aboriginal women helped me understand there's even more that you can connect with. I don't mean like God is not the be all end all, but I mean, you might actually hear your own intuition. Like you're saying, you might even hear the voice of your conscience. Like I shouldn't have said that to my husband last night or whatever, you know, you might hear your ancestors calling the Aboriginal woman I met and spent the most time with was Suzanne Thompson. And she said, Hilda, I was just going to be a hairdresser. And then I started paying attention to my, what my ancestors wanted for me. They were actually appearing to her in her dreams. She started paying attention and now she has custodianship, Mike, of like acres and acres of territory outside of Barcaldon in Australia and the Northern Territories. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I have been trying to, in what my faith looks like today, I still have my quiet time. I have a little gratitude journal, the whole shebang, but I also just on the daily make an effort to 
to listen to my intuition. And it's kind of hard to put your finger on it because you're like, what does it say? Something like turn left here, Hilda, it's like a GPS. Well, in a way, maybe, yes, it's a GPS for my spirit. So if I'm thinking of someone, I'll reach out to them. You know, I'll shoot them a text or whatever. I mean, and of course, most people do this, but have you ever thought it's your intuition leading you? And have you ever thought, stop tamping that thing down if it's telling you don't go out tonight? No, maybe you should actually pay attention to it. And I find that the more I do such things, the more, I don't know, I just feel like I'm in my sweet spot in life. Some people might call it synergy or they feel affirmations. I see the repeated numbers, the whole shebang. And again, as a Christian, I have a certain framework for life, but that doesn't mean that some of these other things aren't also from God. Like I just believe all truth is God's truth. So when I have friends telling me, oh, I'm into all the numbers, I'm like, cool. Cause I'm like, God came up with the numbers. So that doesn't threaten me. And I just, as a matter of fact, I find it super affirming if I see repeated numbers and whatnot. So my encouragement in this space for folks is to take some quiet time in the morning to even just ask yourself, like, you know, what do I want from today? Start to envision it, like the power of quiet and reflection, whether you're a meditating kind of person or not, it doesn't matter. Like the more you kind of hone that skill, it's like a muscle that you work out, it will get stronger and you will be able to connect with it during the day and, and see marvelous things happen in your life. That's what I think. I'm just blown mm. away by it all. I'm like, what? It's crazy, but amazing. Mm. I would love to hear, you can take this, uh, I'll give you a menu of two different options. One would be, I would love to hear a time that your intuition called to you that maybe if you were checking in mentally or tried to make a pros and cons list or figure it out in your head, it didn't make sense, but you felt really called to do it and followed through. And the other would be, was there a time where maybe the opposite happened that your intuition was calling and you, you overrode that. And I would love to hear, ideally, if you have an example for the first one, what were like, if you did follow your intuition, what were the signposts that you were able to pay attention to? Like, how did you know that was something that you were meant to be doing? The first story I'll tell was a recent one. Um, it was that I wanted to go to Mexico with Luke's story. <laughs> It might sound kind of funny, but, um, you know, he's a fellow podcaster. I've met him here and there at Paleo Effects and whatnot. And I interviewed him, I think, on the Wise Traditions podcast. He's an influencer guy, but I really respect him because he has a spiritual journey too, right? And a friend of mine told me he's going to be at this like luxurious resort in Mexico called Cuixmala. And it's like a biodynamic farm and like all these things. And I thought, oh my gosh, I want to go. It wasn't even I want to go. I don't know. I just had a, yeah, like a deep sense of knowing I need to go. I'm going to go. And so what I started doing, and so it's hard to know how much is intuition, how much is determination and perseverance and all the other things, but they kind of work together. So I had this flash of intuition. Let's say I need to go. I'm going to go and be there with Luke's story. The other thing I also knew not even intuitively, but just looking at my bank account was I cannot afford this trip. <laughs> it was thousands of dollars. I'm like, no, I can't do that. 
but I knew I was supposed to be there. So I started emailing someone at this resort. Don't, I hope your listeners don't start doing this right away for this particular place, but just apply this in your own life in your own way. I don't want them to get bombarded and be like, well, Holistic Hilda sent us. <laughs> but anyway, so I just started emailing them. I was like, hey, I'm a podcaster. I can do some podcasts. They're like, we've already got Luke's story. And I was kind of like, I know that. But anyway, I reached out and they were like, well, we don't have room for you, but maybe, you know, when the trip's about to happen, we'll let you know if there's a space. Well, I didn't give up because they say, you know, you need to act as if, so you have your vision and you need to keep acting and working toward it, not just dreaming about it. So I started writing in my gratitude journal, like, thank you. I'm at quick smile, like as if it happened in the past tense with Luke's story, all these things. The long and the short of it is Mike. at the end, they're like, okay, there's a room you can come. And I was like, what? I was like so shocked, but not because, I mean, I'd been hoping and planning and dreaming, but still. And then on top of that, they said, thank you for your persistence. And I was like, what? Like you would have thought they would have been like, you were bugging us, stop emailing us. It was the opposite. And so my intuition and a flash told me I should be there. I worked toward it and it happened. And so now actually I'm trying to plan retreats there. That's another story altogether. But so that was really cool. And I'm grateful. On a harder note and on a very personal note, also, when my kids were little, I didn't know about the Wise Traditions group and their stance on injections. And I don't know where you stand on this either, but part of me thought, I'm not sure I want to have my kids follow this schedule. You know, I just, something told me maybe that's not a good idea. And indeed, my intuition had told me all along, I have my kids naturally, no drugs, no epidural. I just was like, I know this is the way people have been doing it for millennia. So I'm going to just have my kids naturally. I did have them in a hospital, but it was like without any drugs. And um, they were all over nine pounds, by the way. And I'm a very small person, but (laughs) it all happened. It all happened. It was good. But I remember thinking in passing, gosh, should I be doing this schedule of injections? You know, I wasn't sure. But then I thought, well, I guess I have to for them to go to school. And so I just like dismissed it. And happily, you know, my kids are well for the most part but they're not without some of the side effects that can come from the adjuvants that are in these things. So I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't pay more attention to my intuition back then, but now I just feel like connecting with that kind of deep knowing has helped me even in relating to those of my kids who don't see things the same way I do, aren't in the health space in the same way. Some are, some aren't. And, and actually with everybody being tuned into intuition helps you realize every, you can live and let live. Like I find it so beautiful. Like I feel more loving, more kind, more patient because I've learned to listen to myself. So maybe that makes me a better listener with others, but it's a beautiful kind of muscle to work with in, in practice to just practice some quiet, like with a little gratitude journal, even if when you lay your head on the pillow at night, just think of some things you're thankful for to kind of bookend your day and start kind of flexing that quiet, listening, intuition approach to life. Mm. There's one one more bit around this I would love to cover. And it, I know it shows up differently for everyone. And if it would help, like maybe I can share a little bit about what it looks like for me. But there, you you mentioned like what this, this deep knowing, you, not really what it looks like, but you mentioned that there is a deep knowing. And I would love to, I would love to know, no pun intended, like, what does is, what is that deep knowing look like? Is it a physiological sign? Is it a thought pattern that you have? What do you notice in yourself or in your body that 
that indicates there's a deep knowing there? I feel like we all, we all have that deep knowing, like, this is a cool thing too. In all my travels, like I was always looking for like the traditional wisdom that's out there. And suddenly I'm like, oh, Mm. it's in here too. I'm like, are you kidding me? I didn't, (laughs) I didn't know that. And so I want to invite people to explore the deep knowing they already have. So I think that's what you're getting at. Like, how do we even know what the deep knowing is? Well, first of all, we have to, as I said earlier, disconnect from the virtual. There's just too many inputs coming at us all the time. I know, I think Louis CK, the comedian was like, the minute we get bored, we reach for our phones. And I know it's true of me too, at times, like no doubt about it. Like we're looking like, let me just turn on the radio as I'm driving here, put on the next podcast. What if we paused, just hit a big pause button a few times during the day? I think the monks of old who definitely had a deep knowing had a thing. It was like, it wasn't just Vespers. They had a thing like every three hours, bells would ring like at noon, at three, at six, throughout the night. And it was a call to prayer. And so maybe, maybe it would help people just put a little chime or something on your phone. It might annoy you. So think about this deeply before you do it, but you know, you just want something that will call you back to get back in your own skin. I think that's what meditating people do too. I'm not really a big meditator per se, but the idea is stop looking out there and start looking in here, you know? And I think Thich Nhat Hanh, who wrote uh, Pieces Every Step and a few other books, he's this Buddhist monk who just passed away, I think um, yes. this yes. year, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But he said, red taillights of the car in front of him were like his bell, the bell that would call him back to the now. So maybe instead of getting too woo-woo, I should just suggest that we come back to our senses. And this is actually part of ancestral living too, like putting your feet on the ground, getting your face in the sun, savoring real food, uh, friendship with others and freedom from fear. I'm, I'm big on alliteration. So a lot of F's there, but um, we can have all of those by coming to our senses. And this will help us when we tune into what's happening, like right here, right now, it will help us develop that sixth sense, that deep knowing that we don't even know that we have because we haven't looked for it yet. But if you just work on getting a practice coming back to the now, like what am I thankful for right now? What do I see right now? Getting out of our headspace and the virtual space into the now, I think that will help us. I don't get like a certain shiver in my body or something, but I'm just, I'm learning to try to be guided by this internal GPS, you know, that helps me navigate the hard things in life. And the more I'm focused on the here and now, the less the news worries me. I don't even know, you know, where some of the places are that they mention on the news. And I'm like, maybe that's a good thing. I don't think my ancestors knew. And I'm not trying to put my head in the sand either, but I think our ancestors were more preoccupied or occupied, I should just say, with the here and now. Let me hold my grandchild. Let me feed my husband dinner you know, let me catch the sunrise with my niece or nephew. Like it was right where they were. They didn't have the worries of the world on their shoulders. And now we feel like, oh my gosh, I have to be concerned about this other country and all these things. And it's fine if you're listening right now and you're like, I am those things. Well, good. But I, I want to focus more on the here and now and not how other people perceive me. And I think that's helping me on my spiritual journey. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I'm hearing one of the basic practices that anyone could take away from what you said and and that I find really valuable is presencing our senses in some way, right? 
So it's what am I, what am I seeing right now? What am I feeling right now? What am I hearing right now? Like anything that invites us into what is happening in my life at this very moment and is orienting us away from the worries about, oh, there's this problem in the world and there's this thing I need to fix and this thing I need to solve or worrying about ruminating on the past. And I think those can be really helpful and I'm all for planning and uh, having a vision and thinking, you know, realizing um, I don't, I can't quite make this a reality now, but I want it to be a reality someday. But if all of that is done without taking stock of the moment, then very good luck. It's going to be a challenging journey, probably. Yes. And one thing I want to add to that is I was recently with Joel Salatin in Mexico and he's like, I give you permission to be 10 years old again. And I love Mm. that because I think one thing that brings me so much joy is continuous curiosity. Like I'm really curious, like what happens if I walk barefoot? I walk barefoot. Obviously I do it a lot, but in the city, it's a little sketchy with (laughs) broken glass and this and that. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it until I step on a bee or a piece of glass. I'm just going to keep doing it all summer long, you know? Um, And that's kind of what a 10 year old would do. They wouldn't be worried like, oh no, is there has this been sprayed with glyphosate? I seriously do not worry. I'm like, you know, the earth has negative energy that gives us a positive boost. Like the earth has so much to offer us. I have to believe that its energy is going to outweigh any little glyphosate on the blades of grass or what have you. So I just, I make the most of life. I, you know, jump into pools and do all these crazy things because I like that childlike perspective because it keeps us, like I said, joyful, but also present. And that's really important for this day and age, like you said, so we don't carry the worries of the world because we can eat the healthiest diet ever and still be unhappy if we don't cultivate some of this spiritual work that you and I are discussing, this idea of coming back to our senses and, and seeking something greater than ourselves, because these things, these things fill us in a way nothing else can. I think St. Augustine put it best when he said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Which points to really, in a lot of ways, uh, what I, what I appreciate, another thing I appreciate about you is that you're a seeker and, and you love exploring. And with all that wisdom, you, there's also the wisdom of, and, and I've got everything that I need in here. And like the real answers all live within me and everything that I look for explore on the outside is just pointing me back to myself so mm-hmm. i think that's a, a good place to uh leave the listeners for reflection and i just before we go towards the back end of the interview here and and i ask a final few questions is there anything that feels alive for you that we haven't discussed today or anything at all that we that you would like to add in well you've drawn a lot out of me already but I do want to say something that maybe I've danced around, but haven't been specific about this time that we're on this planet is so beautiful and yes, challenging, but also so beautiful. And I think the best way to show up is to nurture our spirits and our souls. And I'm speaking very deliberately right now, because I feel like the distractions and the information coming at us that I've said before, um, is threatening to to steal that time away from us and almost to steal our souls, I would say. Um, In ancient times, 
well, even not that long ago, I've been around, around some indigenous people who were like, don't take my picture because they were thinking it would steal their soul. And now I realize, oh my gosh, these devices are soul sucking. I don't know how many people I've seen like on their device with their kid at tugging at them saying, mommy, mommy, and they're too busy or they're pushing the stroller and they're looking in the device. And I'm like, oh, it's stealing their soul. So a word to the listener, a word of caution to you, Mike, and to all of us is to not allow our souls to be stolen. We are precious as if you will, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve who have beautiful souls and spirits that can get sucked down by the worries of life and, and sucked into AI and all that. And I want to challenge us to stay as human as possible by being present and pursuing things that do bring us joy and lift our souls that are kind of soul and life giving. Well, Hilda, uh, just a few more questions for you and uh, I'll let you get on your way and, and maybe go walk barefoot out into nature <laughs> and get away from this screen. Uh, what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? I would say my morning walk with my dog. <laughs> it really, it's so encouraging. They say people with dogs live longer. And I know why, because you get outside no matter what. And I make sure to do it around sunrise. And this is a habit I picked up from my friend Thaddeus Owen, the primal hacker. He just said, get out every day within 30 to 45 minutes of sunrise. It'll set your circadian rhythm, help you boost your metabolism, all the things. So I don't miss, I don't miss a day. And my dog loves it, of course, because she gets breakfast early and out we go. Um, but I love it too, because it's peaceful, it's quiet, and it's restorative. So I would definitely say that's one kind of healthy, happy, holy habit I have. Mm. What's her name, your dog? Summer. Summer, a perfect name for exactly. a dog that helps you get outside, right? Yep. <laughs> what is something that folks would be surprised to learn about you? Wow. Gosh, I hadn't thought about that. One of my daughters always jokes, mom, I'm going to start an Instagram account, holistic Hilda revealed, but like, <laughs> there's not that much to reveal. I'm actually pretty transparent. I guess how hard I work. I guess that I'm a perfectionist. That sounds bad. This sounds like a job interview when they're like, what's your weakness? I'm a perfectionist. I work too hard, but I honestly spend a lot of time kind of cleaning up the podcast and making sure things are right because I want them to go right because I want it to be good for the world. So I, I think I'm learning to let it go a little bit, which is good, but I guess they'd be surprised by my perfectionistic tendencies, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is something that people, this might be a hard one to answer, but like, what do you think is something that people miss about your work? Uh, it seems like you have a certain way of showing up that people might identify you with. Maybe it's the, the food. What's something that people miss about your work or that you wish people notice more about the work that you do? I think they miss that it really has a strong scientific base and ancestral wisdom base in the sense that I do like to have fun and be lighthearted and, you know, post goofy things. And I think they kind of aren't, don't realize how grounded it all is, that it's not just fluff, that it's got some real substance to it. I think I could be wrong. I'll find out maybe after the show, if that's right. <laughs> yes. Okay, Hilda. Well, I, I think I covered everything with you that I wanted to cover today. So uh, before I ask my very final question, where would you invite my listeners to connect with you? Oh, so I'm on Instagram and Telegram at Holistic Hilda. 
And my YouTube channel is Holistic Hilda, obviously. And of course, the Wise Traditions podcast. Awesome. And actually, before I ask the last question, what's maybe, I know that you've been in the podcasting game for a while. It's, it's a very successful podcast. You've interviewed tons and tons of world-renowned experts. What has been maybe the, the top one or two lessons that you've taken as an interviewer on your podcast? Hmm. Well, one is something that you've done, Mike. It's literally that you can say, tell me more. I joke around that the three little words a podcaster or podcast guest wants to hear is not, I love you, but tell me more because it gives them a chance to dive a little deeper than they may have in the past. And I know you've done that. So that's great. I think, let me think what else. Well, I've learned the art of listening, which I think you have too. Like, in other words, don't just go down your list of questions. If there are any podcasters or potential podcasters out there, you could ask a series of questions but you want to have a back and forth. Otherwise it's like, you know, a job interview, as mm -hmm. I said earlier. So what you want is like, if they say something about, you know, well, my daughter, when she had that accident, you'd be like, what accident? Cause that's what would happen in a normal conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. So to be yourself, to ask the follow-up question, I think those are also helpful tips. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that or, or simply tell me more is exactly. such a powerful tool as, as a coach. I do that in one-on-one -on -one coaching and as a friend, it's really valuable tool. And when, when people, people want to feel seen and heard at the end of the day. And as a podcaster, it, it's no different, right? Yep. So. Okay. Hilda, the final question I ask all of my guests, the podcast, as you know, is called Mike's search for meaning. And I want to know in Hilda's terms, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? Mm, so profound. I think it's a life that follows the direction of your purpose. And that might sound a little vague, but I guess what I mean is don't waste your life on things that don't bring you joy because the thing that brings you joy is going to be what also fills up the world. I think Frederick Beekner put it best when he said, your calling is where your greatest joy overlaps with the world's greatest need. So your calling is where your greatest joy overlaps with the world's greatest need. Don't think that the joy is something you need to stuff away. No, lean into it. And it's bound to meet the needs that the world has. And that is one way to live a life of meaning, fulfilling your calling. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the Japanese concept of ikigai, which I, I'm sure that it doesn't seem like you are familiar with it, are you? Ah, uh -huh. Ikigai. Well, I, I would invite you to, to take a look at that and, and my listeners the same. Uh, Hilda, in just about an hour, which in my podcast is a pretty short amount of time. We covered a whole lot of ground and uh, I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. Uh, Adam, if you're listening to this, I'm, I'm grateful that you made the connection. It, it's a privilege to have someone of your stature on my podcast, sharing your wisdom. And there's so many practical takeaways that folks can take from this interview. And maybe some bigger questions that folks are, are left with. And uh, one of the many things that I appreciated about this conversation is that you named at one point that maybe folks miss about your work that's really grounded in scientific rigor and there's ancestral deeper wisdom that wasn't maybe substantiated by anything. It was just like that deeper knowing. And I love among the other things that I named in this interview, 
that you kind of bring in this, this deep knowing approach, like I just trust it in my body with the scientific, it's been studied, and we ran the numbers on it approach. And it doesn't have to be one or the other, you merge both of them together. And I, I think you've probably heard this many times in your life, but I appreciate your energy, you bring so much passion into the conversation. And it, it makes it so easy for me as an interviewer to just ask a couple of questions and draw it out of you. So a long way of saying thanks so much for being on the show, Hilda. My pleasure, really, Mike. I hope we connect again. Yes, I would love to. And uh, to all the listeners, I hope whenever you're listening, you have a great rest of your day or evening and take good care. Lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.